Today on the podcast, we are joined by Dermot Crowley, an Irishman that arrived in Australia with $20 in his pocket and never left. He shares his journey from a lad who partied too much through to becoming a renowned productivity expert. He's written three books on the subject, and we dive into the leadership lessons that are shared in his recent book, Urgent. Dermot shares insights on everything from how to plan your day using the PASS method through to the three key elements to getting your inbox under control. This was a fantastic conversation where I was reminded of things I could be doing better and things that I could add into my own day for better productivity. Dermot, welcome along to the podcast. Fantastic to have you on today. Thanks so much, Ryan. Lovely to be here. Uh, we're uh, Ireland, we're Australia, we've got a bit of you know, dual nationality going on. What's the, what's the story there? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm originally from Dublin. I came out to Australia um, 26 odd years ago um, as a backpacker. I, I was six, month in, six months into a, a year-long trip and I arrived in Sydney with um, literally with uh, $20 in my wallet, uh, a plane ticket back to Ireland and a Counting Crows cassette tape. Nice. And um, that's kind of how I started my life in, in Australia. <laughs> it's worked so, out. And, well. and, is, and is there an extension to that story that says I was playing the Counting Crows, uh, some poor Australian girl felt sorry for me and decided to, you know, go from there? Pretty much it. Pretty so much it. Yeah, that's right. She, she lent me another $20 and um, we ended up getting married and, and um, I settled down here. So, um, yeah, the classic uh, backpacker story, I reckon. I like it. Hey, very good. Hey, let's uh, jump into a few fast facts, Dermot, and let's uh, get the audience to know you a little bit. Sure. Uh, are you a breakfast or a dinner guy? I am a dinner guy, and I am the cook in our house. I love to cook. Right. So I, I literally wake up in the morning, and one of the first things I'm thinking about is, what am I going to cook for dinner tonight? Because I just get excited about food. But um, for me, Breakfast is um, is just the thing that gets me through to cooking dinner. I, I, though I love my coffee in the morning, my favourite sound in the world is the sound of my stovetop um, percolator going <laughs> as the coffee boils. So high five to that! And what's on the what's on the menu for dinner tonight? Uh, look, uh, tonight I reckon it's going to be probably spaghetti bolognese or some form of uh, Italian ragu because. Uh, I'm actually going away for two weeks on Friday and I need to leave something in the fridge from a 19-year-old son, otherwise he's probably going to starve. So <laughs> I want to cook something that can be redone over a few nights. Nice. Okay. And if you're on holiday, would we likely find you bungee jumping or lying on a pool lounger? Um, bungee jumping or a pool lounger? Probably neither. Is there a middle ground there? Because I am, I'm terribly afraid of heights. I will not ever bungee jump in my life. And I have gone and watched people, but I will never do it. Um, but at the same time, I'm bored on a pool, pool lounger. So you, you'll probably find me walking in the mountains. That is my, um, my favorite thing to do. And, and as we speak, I'm looking at a picture um, that I took uh, on the Kepler track in New Zealand um, a couple of years ago. Myself and my son walked that. So that's, my, that's where I find my, my inner peace uh, up in those mountains. Brilliant. Uh, Kepler's uh, close to my heart. They do a, they do a one-day run over the Kepler, which I did uh, a few years ago. Um, put me off running for quite a long time, but it was, uh, it was a pretty cool uh, environment to go and do that in. Mate, mate, that was one of the toughest things I've ever done, because as I say, I'm scared of heights, and that was quite challenging for me um, in parts. 
But, you know, obviously it's a four-day walk for us, and we were told that people run it, and the record is something like, you know, five hours or something. How is that possible? It's just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. So, well yeah. done. Those, uh, those top guys, they're literally sprinting, and they're just, like, scrambling up the side of this mountain. Yeah. Crazy yeah. things. Uh, pretty impressive crazy. to watch. Already. Yeah. Uh, Dermot, you're the author of three books, and we're going to talk a little bit about those today, some of the, some of the insight. But as someone reading a book, are you, do you like the real thing, or are you a Kindle electronic person? I, I'm actually a bit of both. Um, I do like a physical book, probably more um, fiction if it's going to be a physical book. Um, so, you know, as I say, going away on Friday, I will be bringing a big, thick, maybe science fiction book or something like that. Um, but I do a lot of my reading um, on, uh, on Kindle now on my iPad because I'm also very, um, I, I, I want things now. So, uh, you know, for instance, I, I bought a, a great book recently and, and read that, read the first of a, a three books. It was a trilogy. Got to the end of that. And I went to the bookshop and they didn't have number two in the bookshop. So I immediately downloaded on my iPad. So I'm now reading them on my iPad because I want it now. I don't want to order and get it in a few days time. So I'm very happy in both spaces. Right. You're sounding very much like a millennial, that instant gratification. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe I've learned it from my son. I'm not sure. Too there much time in the Kepler track. When I'm... Possibly. And routine wise, are you an early riser or a night owl? Uh, definitely an early riser. I'm usually um, falling asleep on the couch by, um, by about 9.30. Generally up at, you know, between 6 and 6.30. Um, a very late lie-in for me would be 7. Uh, and, and I hate the thought of losing the day. So if I did somehow sleep in till 8, I'd feel like I was completely shortchanged and the whole hour of my day was gone. I, I, yeah, so I'm a morning person, I guess. Brilliant. And we might dig into what your morning routine looks like. You're a productivity expert. You've spent a lot of your career helping individuals and teams and companies be more effective in that space. So interested to hear how your morning routine starts off and maybe setting your day up for productivity. But final fast fact question, watching some entertainment, watching a movie, are we, are we a thriller or a comedy? What's your genre? Um, if I had to choose between the two, probably a thriller. I love, uh, love a good thriller, love a good um, science fiction thriller. So very, very uh, excited about Tenet coming out soon because it's a bit of both. Um, but like a, like a comedy as well. I'm more a comedy if I'm watching a TV show, it's probably going to be Seinfeld or Friends or The Office, but a movie probably more towards the thriller. I like it. Already, let's come back to that uh, question of how you start your day. Um, I'm interested to know, do you feel like setting yourself up for a productive day starts right from your, your very early morning routine? What's your view there? No, actually, I'm, I'm very much of the belief that, well, I personally need space in the morning. I need to enjoy that coffee. I need to... Um, uh, go for a walk with the dogs. So I'm not, uh, I'm not straight into planning my day or anything like that. I'm as bad as the next person. I will look at my phone way too early and, and um, check the emails and check the, check the WhatsApp posts. I'm very aware of that. Uh, but once I hit the office, and I'm very lucky in this lockdown period that I, I do have an office 
which is six minutes from home. And it's kind of just me because my whole team is remote anyway. We've always worked remotely. So I, I am a big fan of going into the office. And, and when I come into the office, I'm in work mode. And the, one of the first things I will do is to plan my day. So um, I've got a, a routine around that. Um, it takes me 10 minutes to plan my day. Um, and I, I use what I call a pass process where I, I kind of preview what I have on or what I could potentially be doing today. I um, add anything else to that list um, and I've got a, a task list for the day already set. I subtract anything from the list that is not a priority or not going to be achievable today. And then I sequence my task list for the day from most important to least important. So that pass process for me is a really uh, focusing tool to make sure that I'm really clear about what's the best use of my time today. And then I kind of use it as a, um, as a tool to prioritize as the day goes on. So if I've got my plan in place, when new things come in, I'm now able to measure those new things against what I planned and, and make a decision. Is this more important than what I was trying to get done? So, um, and then there's an old saying that goes, plan your work and then work your plan. That's what I do each day. I like it. And it's a, it's a great process. I like that preview, add, subtract and, and sequence is the pass yeah. uh, process. So I like that one. And what kind of criteria or framework do you use to evaluate what's most important? Uh, look, it's always going to be a mixture of, uh, you know, importance versus urgency. Um, so, so some things are time critical but I try not to let the urgency dominate. And um, I think way too often we, can, we confuse what is a priority with what is urgent. And that becomes our only criterion. Um, and I, I believe that way too many of us tend to, uh, we, we, we tend to leave things until the last minute. And then we're constantly having to react to our own urgency. So I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in trying to work as proactively as possible. So for me, importance or, or value or impact is the first criteria. And then the second criteria is, well, how urgent is this? And, and that will influence whether I, I schedule it for today or tomorrow or next week or next month. So Dermot, productivity has been a area of interest and expertise for you for, for some time. You're the author of three books, Smart Teams, Smart Work, and most recently, Urgent. And I'm, I'm keen to dive in particularly into Urgent and why you wrote that book. But tell me, was it, was it the six-year-old dream at school going, I want to be a productivity expert? No, no, not at all. And, and um, I, I was the most disorganized mess when I first came to Australia. So this, was, this doesn't come naturally to me. And it was never even on my radar screen. I, I just happened to, when I, when I came to Australia, I happened to start working in a sales role for a time management training company. And I just fell in love with the idea of organizing people. And, and back in those days, it was paper diaries. It wasn't electronic tools that we use today, but I love the systemized way that you could organize your schedule, you could organize your task list, and, and that was even before email had come along. But um, it very fast became a, a passion. And then in 2002, I decided to start my own business and really focus in on productivity through technology. So at this point in time, a lot of organizations had started using tools like Microsoft Outlook. And that's really been my niche ever since. And I've learned to get organized uh, because I've, I've been, you know, the best way to do something is, is to teach it and, and you become good at it. So 
Sure. Yeah. And you've helped, you know, thousands of people now and hundreds of different different organizations. If I ask you to reflect on a on a standout where someone you helped or an organization you helped and you really saw, you know, breakthroughs, I'm, I'm probably particularly interested in maybe at a leadership level because that's yeah. many of our audience are in that zone. Is there a standout example for you of someone you, you helped? Yeah, look, I, I remember one, one story that I often tell um, was uh, getting a call one day to work with um, the head of Fairfax newspapers at the time, who was also um, the first uh, rugby captain to win uh, the inaugural World Cup in, to, uh, in um, 1987, David Kirk, so a uh, mm -hmm. fellow New Zealander. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just a bit nervous going into David's office because he was very senior. And I, I do remember my father shouting at the TV screen when, when he was playing uh, when I was young. Uh, but he, he um, asked me in to help him to manage his email. And one of the things that he, he said to me, because he was quite ruthless that day, he, he, he literally deleted everything in his, in, in his inbox on my say-so. And he said to me, look, Dermot, my inbox helps me to be a manager, but it's getting in the way of me being a leader. And that was his motivation to change his habits around how he managed email. And then I remember bumping into him in an airport a couple of years later and, and um, I said to him, you know, David, how's your inbox looking now? And I remember he, he got out his Blackberry and he looked at it and he said, six emails. And that was a, that was a really massive behavioral change because he had thousands of emails in his inbox before that. You know, I really saw the all black mindset come out there um, where he saw this as a, um, a one percenter, something that he could do that would give him an edge on the field. And it just so happened that his field was in business now rather than rugby. And that was quite remarkable um, at that senior level to really grab something like that. But then, you know, over the years, I've seen so, so many people. I reckon I've probably trained well over 100,000 people um, uh, over the last 20 years. And, you know, I've had a lot of uh, really great feedback from people to say that, they just feel so much more in control because of the concepts that I've taught them. They, they feel less stressed. They're working more um, balanced hours um, and, and they're getting more time to focus on what's really important, which when, you know, there's a lot of talk about getting on top of your inbox because it's usually a big issue for people. But the whole point of getting on top of your inbox is so that you can get your head out of your inbox and get it focused on the things that are really important. So I reckon, yeah. yeah. Yep. And look, here at The Breakthrough, we're big proponents of the health, family and work. And uh, I think, you know, getting some control around your inbox and the other urgent demands and time management you have around you, you know, that allows you to get back and, and focus on the, the health aspect, both mental and physical. And then, of course, spending time with family and friends and community and all those things that we actually want to live, live life for, as well as doing the, yeah. the work piece. Yeah, I, I had a senior manager quite recently who again, um, as a part of the training, um, yeah, got her inbox sorted out and, and you know, got it down to zero. And she said to me, I just felt like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. And I reckon a lot of people don't realize that, that um, when, when they're not in control of their inbox, they just have this level of stress that is constant. And it doesn't allow for work-life balance because they never mentally let go of their inbox when they're at home or with the family. They're constantly looking at the phone and, and they're obsessing about all the stuff they haven't done yet. And when they get on top of their inbox, that doesn't mean they've done everything. It just means that they have made decisions about everything that needs to be done. And hopefully, you know, they've 
scheduled time to deal with the things they need to deal with so that then they can mentally let go of it, which allows them to create that balance, I reckon. And don't you talk about the past process as a way to manage the setup of your day? Do you have a quick tip for the audience of how people could start thinking about that inbox management? Yeah, look, um, the, the three things that would probably immediately jump to mind for me is um, number one, don't waste time filing emails. Now, I want to be really careful here because that doesn't mean that I want you to use your inbox as a filing system. Your inbox is a place where you receive emails. It's, it's, uh, but it's, it's like a workspace. It's like your desk. So I don't want you to keep emails in your inbox, but at the same time, I don't want you to waste time filing stuff into 127 different folders because you think it's going to help you to find things more easily. So I've always um, uh, worked with one filing folder. That's it. And I've got a button set up in my inbox called file. So if I don't need an email, I delete it. If I do need an email, I press file and it goes into my filing folder. And then I've just become very good at searching for what I want in that filing folder. So simplest filing system possible. The second thing would be to reduce the noise. So it depends on how many emails people get a day, but I'm usually working with people who are getting at least 70 or 80 emails a day, probably more than 100. And at the senior levels in large organizations, they can be getting two, three, four hundred emails a day. And that tells me that there's just a lot of noise going on. Nobody needs to get 300 emails to do their jobs effectively. So we've got to um, make sure that we're not victims of our inbox and we need to take control and, and to reduce the noise. And there's lots of things you can do to reduce the volume of email that you get. Having a team conversation around how you use email and how you use things like CC and reply all because often people don't mean to do this, but they, they, they don't think about the, the impact that their poor behaviors have on, on other people. So that can be one thing you can do. And then there's lots of technology um, that will help you to reduce noise where you can set up rules to automatically file or delete stuff. So that, that's probably number two, but, but then number three is don't use your inbox as a to-do list. Don't leave emails in your inbox to try and help you to remember that you need to go back and deal with them. Whether you're using Microsoft Outlook or whether you're using Gmail, which are probably the main two platforms out there, you've got the ability to take an email and either schedule time into your calendar to deal with it or turn it into a task and make it a priority. So I'm a big fan of using, I personally use Microsoft Outlook. I use Outlook as a workload management system and the inbox is only one component of that. And if I need to do something with an email and I can't deal with it now, I'll turn it into a task and it becomes an, an action either for today or tomorrow or this week. And I really believe that when you lift an email out of your inbox and you, you actually schedule it and prioritize it, it's a very different thing. It's, it's not just another piece of work buried in the pile. It becomes a priority that you're managing your time around. And, and that's the big shift for most people. Outlook is not an email management system. It's a time management system. And you need to use it with that mindset. I like it. Great, uh, great tips there. So don't waste your time filing. Use the search functionality. I'm a, a massive proponent of that and uh, always talking to my team about using search functionality and pretty much all the platform tools now, the search capability is just phenomenal if you rely on that. Um, reducing the noise, so having those conversations with your team and, and uh, looking at CCs and reply alls like that and don't use it as a to-do list. Yep. Yeah. 
Oh, Superb. Okay. Uh, talk to us, Thurman, about your most recent book, Urgent. Uh, you know, you'd previously written uh, uh, books that were uh, focused around individual productivity and team productivity. Why did you feel the need to, to write Urgent? So when I wrote Smart Work, and that's gone back, you know, four, four, um, four and a half years ago now, um, that was kind of codifying what I've been teaching people for the previous 15 years. So um, it was content that was very um, familiar to me and it was kind of my world. I, I thought about productivity purely from a personal productivity point of view. But when I wrote Smart Work, it, it kind of gave me a platform to stand on and realize that productivity was so much bigger than, uh, than just personal productivity, your own systems and tools and, and strategies, if you like. And I realized that the, the issue for a lot of people is they might do my training around smart work and, and they'd put a system in place and they get all excited about getting their inbox under control and managing all of their, their tasks and their activities in the calendar, all of that sort of stuff. But the problem was that the productivity gain was sometimes short-lived because those people were then going back into a culture that just killed their productivity all over again. And it got me thinking about um, what organizations needed to do if they truly wanted to um, create a, a productivity shift for their people. And it seemed to me that, yes, we need to give people the, the personal productivity skills and tools, but we also need to change our cultures. And so my second book, Smart Teams, was really about three things. It was about your communication culture, so reducing that email noise your meeting culture, so meeting, making your meeting time more effective, and your collaboration culture. And, and that just made a lot of sense to me to approach productivity from both of those perspectives. But I swore I'd never write another book. I said, that's it. <laughs> I've had it. I've, I've done my old done. And um, I've, 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 heard, I've heard many mothers say the same thing uh, exactly. about more children, you know, yeah, but yeah. The, uh, the, the pain and the, and the bad uh, ebbs away and said, oh, no, I could go again. Maybe I could go again. And, and what happened was last year, so 2019, I actually went to Harvard. So um, I've had a bit of a chip on my shoulder all my life because I didn't do particularly well at school. I was always very intelligent, but I, I just couldn't seem to apply myself to study. Uh, didn't go to university, much to my father's um, uh, disappointment in, in my mind, although the reality of that I don't think was true. But I did end up going to university last year and I thought, well, if I'm going to go to university, I'm going to go to the best. So I, I ended up going to Harvard. Now, it was only a week-long intensive leadership program, but it was, it was really life-changing. It was amazing. And um, it was when I was there, um, our, our professor in the uh, in the course was um, Professor Ron Heffitz, who is, is well known for his work around leadership and especially around um, adaptive leadership. And that just kind of really opened my mind to a way of talking about urgency that I hadn't seen before. So I'd always seen um, urgency as being a problem in organizations, urgency and reactivity and the fact that in most, most of my clients, which would tend to be the banks and the law firms and the consulting firms, um, so big corporates, every organization I go into, everything's urgent. Everything is, you know, a million miles an hour and, and people are under such pressure. But I never knew how to talk about it because if I, if I went into a leadership team and said, hey, you guys need to dial down the urgency, 
they would immediately push back and say, no, 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 we don't want our people to slow down. We need to create traction. We need to build momentum. We need to create a sense of urgency. But to my mind, they weren't creating a sense of urgency. They were creating senseless urgency a lot of the time. But um, uh, Ron Heffert's just, uh, I saw some of his work and, and I saw how I could kind of adapt some of his ideas to help me to talk about urgency. And, and that's uh, with his permission, I adapted one of his models to talk about what I call the three zones that we can work in. There's the reactive zone, there's the active zone, which I think is where we should spend most of our time on. And there's the inactive zone. So the inactive zone is where we, we don't have any urgency. And, and unfortunately, there's usually a sense of complacency and sluggishness. And the reactive zone is where everything is urgent. But the active zone is where we, we use urgency in a purposeful way. And of course, there are going to be some things that are urgent we need to deal with, but it's balanced. And we're working proactively as much of the time as possible. Um, so, you know, that's what inspired me to, uh, to write Urgent. And, and I, I wanted to write a book this time that was less of a technical manual because my, my previous books were quite technical in their sure. prescriptions. Um, I wanted this to be a rock that I was throwing at corporate to say, hey, you guys need to, to wake up to this because the effects of what I call chronic and acute urgency are really detrimental to your organizations. People are burning out, people are, are overly stressed, and it's not actually helping them to achieve better work uh, or, or achieve their objectives in any better way. Fantastic, and it sounds like we are super aligned here, uh, Dermot, in our own leadership development program for managers. Our very first module is called Active Versus Reactive. Fantastic. Um, so it sounds like we're, uh, we've been uh, vibrating in the same level of the universe, maybe. I mean, as a, as a business leader, you know, I've maybe got or certainly a sense of pressure from the board or from the CEO um, or from a, you know, a business owner that I'm, I'm working with and alongside. It always feels like we never quite get enough done. We always are trying to strive to get more. How, as a leader, do I... Uh, one, shape the conversation with the people that are in my team that I'm leading, and then also how do I shape the conversation with the, the board or the MD or the general manager or whoever that kind of person may be that I, I report to? How do I shape the, the conversation around this in, in both directions? So I think it's really important to understand as a leader the, the, the different causes of urgency and then shape the conversation around that. So I reckon that some urgency is, is fake, um, so it's not actually real. And sometimes that's caused by other people. So they, they'll, someone else will make it urgent, but when you actually examine it, it's not. And, and um, we need to be able to you know, push back on that very firmly. And, and that's happening in their teams all the time. There's a, um, you know, well, I was having a conversation with a client the other day where they were saying that you know, literally almost every email they receive has urgent in the subject line. And what they need to do is, if it truly is urgent, they need to kind of say something different. They need to say really, really urgent or something. And it's just gone crazy and it's kind of become the norm. So I reckon leaders need to be able to spot that fake urgency. And they also need to spot when they're creating it themselves. So sometimes they're the ones who create the urgency themselves. And, and even within their teams, if you think about people who've got a poor... Um, habit around email where they've got email alerts turned on 
and every time an email comes in, they simply react to the email. That is someone making an email urgent, even though it's not urgent. And you know, people will often say to me, I'm afraid if I don't deal with it immediately, I'll forget to do it later. And that's because they don't have a good system in place yes. to manage their proactive actions. Yes. So this, this fake urgency um, happens all the time, and I, I think we need to eradicate it. Um, you then have what I call avoidable urgency, and that's where um, things are, are urgent, but they're only urgent because somebody else left it until the last minute and then put it on your plate, or you left it until the last minute and then you had to clean up your own mess. And, and that just comes down to a lack of planning, a, a, a reactive mindset, and you know, a lack of a good system to manage your work proactively. But then there's the, the reasonable urgency. And the reasonable urgency is, is the good urgency, is the productive urgency, because sometimes things are truly urgent and we couldn't have planned for them, we couldn't have anticipated them, and we need people to mobilize behind those things. So I think a good leader will understand those nuances and they won't accept um, things that are urgent because someone didn't plan properly or if it's not really urgent. And I reckon that if we can minimize that, we're never going to get rid of urgency. And I don't even want to make urgency out to be the bad guy. It's just a reality. But if we could minimize the unproductive urgency, it puts people in a much better place to deal with the productive urgency when it does arrive. Mm -hmm. So I reckon that, that to answer your question, there's a conversation that leaders need to have with the board around this and with their leadership team and with their, um, their wider teams. And I reckon that it's a cultural shift that needs to happen. It's one of the productivity cultures. And if organizations work on this and put a set of agreements in place about how they work together in relation to urgency, it can really shift the dynamic for everyone involved. Mm. I like it. And Devin, oh, we've uh, been doing some, I guess, some thought leadership more recently, uh, led by my business partner, Dr. Mike Ashby, around aspects, looking at contribution to your organization rather than productivity. And yeah. I'm sort of interested in your reflection as to uh, that word around productivity. Our sense is that the productivity has almost come from the sort of industrialization uh, zone where we were mm. all about how do we get more out of this current resource, whether that yeah. be a machine or a person or whatever, and almost this lost sense that being busy equaled being productive. And we yeah. felt that that was just that rubbish. It's really easy to be very busy for a day, but really mm. not add a lot of value to uh, you know, your team, your organization, even, even yourself. And so you know, internally in our own team, we've been talking about what was your contribution today? Now, sometimes contribution might be about getting that very important task or project completed, but mm. it might also be about the, the five minutes you took out to have a authentic conversation with someone else in your, your team. That might be the best contribution you could have made today. Yeah. What's kind of your reflection about, do, we, do you feel like in the organizations you work with that there's been a, um, maybe almost an a, uh, unnecessary obsession with productivity in the, in the bad sense? Yeah, look, I, I think um, that can certainly be true. And I, I think that the reality is in a, in a lot of organizations, because of the sheer volume of uh, things like emails, because of the expectation about being in so many meetings, and you probably heard this yourself, you know, through COVID, the, the amount of Zoom meetings has gone through the roof. So people are just kind of in their first Zoom at eight o'clock, and then they get out of the last Zoom at six o'clock, and they haven't had time to actually do anything 
that adds value outside of being in those meetings, let alone even check their emails. Um, that's not productivity for me. Um, someone who, who wades through 200 emails in a day, that's not productivity. And, and I, I'm a big fan of Inbox Zero. I certainly didn't coin the term. You know, lots of people came before me that talked about Inbox Zero, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of it. And it's only because I believe that if you are in control of your inbox and you can get it down to zero maybe once a week, there's a greater chance that you'll get your head out of your inbox and you'll get it into what's really important in your role. Um, but sometimes people mistake, when I talk about inbox zero, they equate that to being productive and they, they think that, oh, you're teaching people to get their inbox to zero and um, you know, you're saying that they're productive because they do that? No, no, no not at all. It's just a, a means to an end. So I kind of think that if you imagine um, your schedule being a combination of your fixed time commitments, your meetings, and your priorities, so I, I tend to work with a view that brings both my task list and my, my schedule into the one view. If that's my total schedule for the week, uh, what I try to do is have a healthy balance within that schedule. And there's a number of things that I think you need to balance. Um, there's a healthy balance between the reactive stuff and the proactive stuff. There's a balance between the, the meetings versus the time working on priorities. Um, there's a, a balance between what's important and what's urgent. So they're all things that I think about. But what makes it into my schedule is a combination of stuff that is driven by other people and stuff that is driven by me. So if I think about the inputs that come from other people, there would generally be emails that I need to deal with, meeting actions that I've been asked to deal with in a meeting, potentially paperwork coming across my desk. They're all things that I need to respond or react to, and usually someone else is driving that in some way. And that's certainly a part of what should end up in my schedule, including meeting invitations that I've been in, you know, invited to. That's a part of what should be in my schedule. But to, to create a healthy balance, I also need to think about what I call my, my outcomes. So you know, if the, the inputs are coming in from the left, the outcomes are coming down from the top. And I generally think about those in three ways and what I call people, priorities, and projects. And it's really important to have some sort of a reflective process in place every week where you stop and you think about people and you think about what are some of the key discussions that I need to have over the next week or two. And that drops in certain next step activities. You need to think about your big picture priorities. So every month I, I create a, a top 10 list of my big priorities for the month ahead. But then every week when I'm doing my weekly planning, I review that list and I ask myself the question, what's the next step action that needs to drop into my schedule to move that forward? And then of course there's projects and uh, those uh, more complex pieces of work, I review them on a weekly basis. And as long as your schedule is a healthy balance of both the, the outcomes and the inputs, then I think that's true productivity. Does that make sense? It does. I like that, I like that definition. I think it's the, the key piece is moving away from this 
assumed relationship that busyness equals productivity. You know, yep. the things that you're talking about are much more towards the value contribution of being clear on what is that's going to be helpful to my people, what's going to be helpful for me, what's going to be helpful to the organization, where are we going to add value? And yeah, I totally agree that that, uh, that yeah. definition of productivity is a lot closer. And I suppose it's, the, it's managing that balance of being responsive on one hand to the inputs and being proactive with the, the outcomes. And they're the two dynamics that you need to get good at, I suppose. Got it. In Dermot, you know, we are in an uh, environment now where some of us are doing a lot of forced work from home. Mm. And uh, we're seeing more and more organizations, you know, outside of the COVID pandemic choosing to, um, you know, whether it be flexible working models that people do have some, some work from home time or they're looking at alternative ways for their organizations to work. Do you foresee as, a, as an expert in this area, do you see um, a way that people need to work differently if they're working from, from home more often? Yeah, look, I think if you don't have good systems in place, uh, when you're isolated, you can really end up drowning. I think that we can get away with um, having average systems in place when we're in a workplace where our manager is there looking over our shoulder saying, I need you to do this next. Or you can have conversations with people and work out where am I at? What do I need to be focusing on? But when that's harder to do, then I think people need to be a lot more organized. So that's a part of it. The bigger issue that I'm probably seeing play out is the fact that when it comes to those more complex um, initiatives that we're we're moving forward, what I call your big picture uh, work, your projects and things like that. Suddenly, there's a, the, it's very hard to collaborate productively when you're in these remote situations. So for me, the, the two keys to productive collaboration are going to be, on one hand, accountability. So having an accountability culture, which gives people the ability to be self-motivated and self-driven and, and self-responsible. But at the same time, we need visibility. And that's often missing because people are managing their work in lots of different tools that are quite invisible. So people are managing their projects in their inbox or in an Excel spreadsheet or in their notebook or in their head. And you kind of get away with that maybe when you're having those regular huddles and conversations. But when everyone is dispersed, if you don't have the work visible in the center, it really creates problems. So, um, you know, I've been having a lot of conversations about the, the idea of using tools that are at people's fingertips, like, you know, in, in most of my clients would be Microsoft-centric, so they're on Office 365, um, but they've got access to things like Microsoft Teams, which is a great collaboration chat platform. They've got Microsoft Planner, which is a very simple but powerful project planning board. And the, the beautiful thing about that is you can make the work visible across the whole team, doesn't matter where they are. You can have a project plan and you can start to really work out what needs to be done, who's doing it, where are we up to with that work, and what's the, the progress that we're making. Yep, great insights. We're uh, big fans in our organization as well. We predominantly use Asana as our project yep, management tool. Time. We found it gave us a huge uh, lift in our effectiveness. 
um, because we had overviews of where we were at, what was being worked on, who was responsible for what. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of that trying to search back through the inbox going, oh, I'm sure I sent you an email asking you to do something around yeah. around that. It was kind of there and uh, invisible. Big fence. Yeah. Okay, do it. Let's do um, a little bit of uh, reflection. You know, now that you've uh, full of uh, wisdom, what, what advice would you give your 20 year old self? What advice would I give my 20 year old self? I was a, I was a bit of a disaster at 20. Um, probably party less. Cause I, are you I, sure? Are you sure? Yeah, I reckon. I reckon I was too much the party, um, the party okay. goer. I was, uh, you know, this is Dublin, so it was a different culture uh, in Dublin. But I was in the pub pretty much from Wednesday to Sunday, um, which isn't good. I look at my nineteen-year-old son now, and and you know, he might go to the pub two nights a week, tops, absolute tops. So I, I reckon that was uh, I was a bit too much the party boy, but at the same time. I reckon that I'd advise myself to um, trust, trust myself because although I didn't do well at school and, and I had to kind of get a job and work my way up them, uh, through the ranks, I was a really diligent worker. I wasn't afraid of hard work. And Obviously, when I had my opportunity, um, I excelled and then I was able to start my own business and, and to have you know, written three books and, and to have run a successful business for 20 years. I must be doing something right. But I didn't trust that back then. And um, I'm not sure maybe the people around me trusted me enough in those early days to say, just go out there and work hard and you'll be right. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's good reflection. And what are you most proud of in terms of what you've achieved? Uh, look, incredibly um, proud to have written the books. Um, it, it is a challenge um, to write a book and for one of them to, to go bestseller in Australia. Um, never thought that would happen. And, and the reason I'm proud of them is not the recognition or the status that that might seemingly give you because it really does and you write a book no one reads it and, and you kind of it's have the to have it. surely it's the huge royalty checks you get from writing books. that's right yeah yeah, yeah. just they're, massive they're so big they don't bother even sending them to me <laughs> anymore actually funny story um there's an actor an irish actor Dermot crowley who um people would know from luther and he was in star wars and some major movies like that he got sent my royalty checks by accident <laughs> And if you if you Google him, it'll say Dermot Crowley, um, actor in Luther and Star Wars, an author of three productivity books. <laughs> Classic. So um, yeah, Funny. but um, yeah, look for me, it wasn't. Uh, I'm not proud of the books because of that. I'm I'm proud of the books because it pushed my thinking each time to a new level and allowed me to have a, a better, richer conversation with my clients uh, around the issues that they were facing. So I think that that's why I'll probably keep on having these babies as it were, um, because every couple of years I feel the itch to really level up my thinking and a book is the best way of doing it. Yep, brilliant, I like it, like it a lot. And tell me if you could be uh, anyone for a day, who would you be? Would you be Dermot Crowley, the actor, or would you be, uh, be someone else? I reckon I would like to be somebody who worked on Richard Branson's island, Necker Island, 
I'd love to be in a position for a day where I was close to him and I could talk to him about his learnings and, and his insights. I think that'd be incredibly interesting. Someone that he was really comfortable with and would just chat with, you know, and uh, there was no agenda. I think that'd be uh, immensely interesting and rewarding. I think that is possible, isn't it? You can actually do kind of like a business leaders camp. You, you know, can, yeah. Kind he, of like he sits around, has a chat, etc. He's got a whole practice set up around that, but I reckon that would still be a little bit engineered and you would get the Richard Branson on show mm -hmm. rather than, you know, just um, been hanging around them where he kind of lets his guard down a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. Okay. Hey, Dermot, look, I, I love some of the uh, insights you've given us today. They've been really practical, right from how you set up your day to those quick tips around how we can think about email management. And then uh, for us as business leaders, thinking about how we change the conversations with our teams and move away that, that great uh, term that you use, um, having a sense of urgency rather than senseless urgency. That really resonated with me. So thanks for sharing those, those insights. Um, for our audience who wants to connect with you, uh, maybe if you could just give us some insight, a uh, recap of the books you've written, uh, maybe the programs that you run and how people can access those and where, where's best to connect with you. Yeah, great. Okay. So um, look, the best, um, the best way to connect is probably through my, um, my business website, uh, which is adaptproductivity.com.au. You'll find my contact details on there and, and I'm very happy to have a chat. And the books I've written, and the first one is um, Smart Work, that's all about personal productivity, and that aligns to a, a program that we call Smart Work. And we run that face-to-face -face when we can, but we obviously have an online version of that. Um, Smart Teams was my second book that probably came out about three years ago, and, and that's all about how we work together more productively. And again, that aligns to a, a series of um, short webinars that we now run around your four productivity cultures, which are your, um, your email culture, your meeting culture, your collaboration culture, and now your urgency culture. So um, that's kind of often the next level program for teams that I've worked with. And then um, the latest book, Urgent, and um, that should be in all the, um, the bookshops, so Amazon, Booktopia, mm -hmm and in, in some of the, um, the physical bookshops as well, uh, I think in New Zealand. They're all published by Wiley, so you can always go to the Wiley site if you want to find them. That, that's never going to be a training program. Uh, I can't ever imagine running a training program called Urgent, but it has become one of the modules in Smart Teams. And it's a keynote presentation for conferences and the like. Everything is very firmly focused on productivity and, and will always will be for me. That's my, my, my real work passion. Um, but I think you'll find that they all have very different flavors and they all work together to create a more productive culture ultimately. Brilliant. Hey, Dermot, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Uh, I've, I've learned some things and you've also sparked some uh, things that I've learned in the past. And I'm like, damn, I should get back to doing that. So uh, thank you for that. And I'm sure you've done the same for our audience. It's been a uh, pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Oh, no, thank you. It's been a real pleasure.